So with that, would you stand with me as we read the word? We like to honor God's word. Say, okay, it's, it's such a, it needs to be honored every day. It needs to be honored more in our nation. Maybe that can be a part of your prayers as you think about it. We're in Genesis 38, but I'm going to give a little running start from 37, verse 34. Now, we looked at this last week. In verse 34 of Genesis chapter 37, we read, Then Jacob tore his clothes, because he's hearing that, as far as he knows, Joseph has been killed by some kind of wild animal. So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. You can imagine. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Chapter 38. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers, left his family, visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. Let's pray. Father, again, we bow before you and before your word. And we say, Lord, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. James says it's not just don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word. We don't want to be deceiving ourselves, Lord. We have some information. We have some knowledge. Lord, we want transformation. We want your Holy Spirit to take the things that we think about, how we think about them, and as we're thinking about that, and we pray you'd shape them, Lord, into the, the, the mind of Christ. Please, Holy Spirit, we invite you. I pray you take the things that I prepared, break them fresh right now, right here, right in this room. As people are watching, people in the lot, wherever it is, Lord, your word's going out. We believe that you are speaking, alive, powerful, and we ask you to divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Give us, Lord, a humility before you to receive the engrafted word, and thus our lives changed. Bless now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So here we have a story that's uh, the, the topic of our, of our series here is destiny. And as I look, and we'll probably, I'll probably remind you of this each, each time, if not maybe quite that. But destiny is the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person in the future. You might say a particular thing, but here we're dealing with a person. So God is faithfully forwarding his story. I say his, capital H, is, dash, story. History is God's story. And, he, and he's going about sovereignly and providentially to, to hear his story of eternal salvation through the events that will necessarily happen to one particular person. That person is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, this morning, and carrying through, God is also faithfully forwarding his story of eternal salvation through every event that happens to anyone and everyone who receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Believing the gospel changes everything, and God is working faithfully His plans, His providential workings in our lives to fulfill His plans for our lives. Now, there is a destiny just as certain for those who refuse to believe the gospel. 
who choose to reject Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. What is your destiny? I can answer that for you. Your destiny is yours to choose. The most important choice you will ever make is the destiny of your soul. No one can choose that for you, and it's not complicated. There are only two choices. The first is to choose to be destined for heaven. Now note also the second one. The second is to choose to stay destined for hell. To receive Jesus or to reject him. And that is the most important thing that we could ever talk about as we're gathered. Jesus said, he who is not, is not, is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Are you with Jesus or against him? There's only two places you can be. Jesus said in John chapter 3, we're very familiar with 16, but let's take a little bit more context. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe him is, notice, condemned already. So the choice is you can choose to be destined for heaven or stay destined for hell. It's your choice. So to not choose Jesus is to already have chosen. It's serious stuff. This is an urgent matter that requires your serious attention. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And lose his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't, your, the, the salvation of your soul, Psalm says, is costly. And you can't pay the price. The debt is death. So as you needed someone, Jesus paid the price. Can I hear an amen? He paid the price to pay the penalty of our sin. And so propitiation is God's love providing for his wrath, satisfying his wrath, and releasing the mercy and grace of God. How? I believe the gospel. Whoever believes in him will be saved. It's a sure thing, a sure bet. So what's your destiny this morning? Let's begin there and move on. Destiny, now, as I was preparing for this study, in this chapter, the thought that kept coming to mind was what what I gave it the title. Grace running in the background. So I went with it. Grace running in the background. The word grace is not found in this very messy chapter. Some wonder why this chapter was ever included. Others would remove it altogether, but thankfully it's not up to them. You see, thankfully the Holy Spirit included it. It was up to him. It's his inspired word. Because in this chapter, grace is running in the background. And we, in hindsight, get to read it get to take it in and rejoice in the grace of God. Now, this chapter is tucked into a larger story about Joseph. Joseph is an important part of an even larger story that began with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. But before Abraham was, and after Joseph will be, is the infinite running of the grace of God through thousands of years and counting. 
counting on the return of Jesus Christ. We know not the day or hour, but there is coming a day when God's plan through him will be culminated. Grace, now I want to say this because I think it's really important. Paul emphasizes this a few times in the book of Romans. Grace is not a license to sin. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Shall we sin that grace may abound? The word Paul gives is perish the thought. So we're not talking about a free ticket to heaven here. We're talking about the grace of God. Grace is costly. In fact, the acronym G-R-A-C, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is the cross of our suffering Savior. Grace is the staff and the rod of our good shepherd. I love this one. Grace is the crown of our coming king. Note the grand finale of the Bible in the book of Revelation, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Note this in Revelation chapter 1. John, to the, to, to, the, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne of God, and from Jesus Christ. Notice, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood, as may as kings and priests to his God, and we shall reign forever and ever. And we say, amen. amen. Even so, amen. Now it says there, and all the tribes will mourn because of him, even so, amen. That's talking about, I believe, Israel. And there's going to be a mourning there because they're going to realize what they did to, our, to their Messiah. Grace to you and peace. That begins this last chapter. Notice in chapter 22. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And then there's the word. Can I hear it? Amen. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you all. And there it is again. Amen. Grace is running in the background of God's plan for all eternity for your soul and my soul. Love it. <laughs> Love it. This chapter has been called an interruption as though it breaks the flow of the story. Not so. What we are getting here is a little background of the history of Judah, who was one of the most prominent of the 12 sons of Jacob. So from this commentary, I, wanna, I want you to read along with me because I love this first paragraph, just struck me, and I thought, i got to include this. Interruptions are often perturbing, but they are sometimes vital. Some years ago, a couple that my wife and I had come to know told us of one, of their, of one such occasion. The wife knew how upset it made her husband to be interrupted in the middle of a project. How many of you guys would say amen? <laughs> Consequently, she walked up to him and stood quietly as he worked happily on a project in the garage. In due time, he finished what he was doing and looked up, signaling his wife that it was now permissible to engage him in conversation. Her words took him totally by surprise. Calmly, she reported, the house is on fire. <laughs> and it really was. Genesis 38 is an interruption also, but a very significant one. What chapter 37 has explained how Joseph and so the entire nation of Israel what wound up in Egypt rather than Canaan. Chapter 38 tells us why this Egyptian sojourn was necessary. 
Chapter 38 provides a backdrop against which the purity of Joseph in chapter 39 stands out the, most, the more plainly. Chapter 39 and following describe the price which Joseph had to pay for the sins of his brother. Judah, the son through whom the Messiah would be born, was so carnal that he was willing to marry a Canaanite woman, to have a heathen for his closest companion, and to enter into an illicit relationship with a cult prostitute. Something drastic had to be done, and the exile in Egypt was God's remedy. There, living among a people who detested Hebrew shepherds, even if the Hebrews were willing to intermingle and intermarry with these people, the Egyptians would not even consider such a thing. While the sojourn in Egypt was in many respects a bitter experience, it was a gracious act on the part of God. Grace running in the background, unquote. We'll get more of that as we go. Judah is the fourth son of Jacob by his wife Leah. Judah means praise. Judah saved Joseph's life by suggesting that his brothers sell Joseph to Ishmaelite merchants rather than kill him. Later in Egypt, Judah begged Joseph to detain him, Judah, rather than Benjamin, Jacob's beloved son. That was a breaking point that we'll get to. Judah was sent by Jacob to precede him in Egypt. Jacob rather, notice, Jacob rather than his older brothers, he's fourth son, received Jacob's blessing, this is chapter 49, in that blessing, listen, in that blessing, Jacob foretold the rise of Judah. We read, your father's children shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Speaking of Jesus' first coming, that's another whole fantastic area of prophecy that we'll look at. That's in Genesis 49. So my question to myself and to you, who would have ever guessed this possible from what we read in Genesis 38? When you look at Judah, grace running in the background. But what is impossible with man is not with God. For with God, all things are possible. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. This is God, the faithful God, who promised and delivers on every one of his promises. Revelation chapter 5, again. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a, a, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John goes on. Then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. Then I wept much, John, weeping, because this is a pivotal point. If there's no one worthy, we're sunk. And so I wept much because no one is found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And then you start getting into this whole thing of God reclaiming the earth, the title deed. Why? Through Jesus Christ, who came through the Judah, the Lion of Judah. Who would have ever guessed this possible when you read chapter 38? But then you look at the Bible and you thought, how would you ever think this possible? When right from the beginning, sin began to ruin everything that God desired. 
Judah had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er and Onan were killed by divine judgment because of their sins. It's a mess. Judah also fathered twin sons, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, Er's widow. Perez is the illegitimate son of Judah through Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and yet Perez becomes the line that will be followed to the Messiah. In the genealogy of Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph being Mary's betrothed husband, there are four women mentioned. The first is Tamar, she's a Canaanite. The second is Rahab, she's a Canaanite harlot from Jericho. The third is Ruth, who's a Moabitess. And the fourth is Bathsheba, who's an adulterous Hittite, the wife became the wife of David. Now, note who is not mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Great women like Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. All four women had questionable, even disgraceful marriage unions. But God included them in bringing his son into the world. Even Mary's marriage was questioned. This chapter does not break the flow. Rather, it flows with the fullness of the grace of God through his work to overcome and conquer sin. God does not disqualify us because of our sins. He reaches down to us in our sin. And so we read in 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, not many wise according to flesh. We went over this Wednesday night. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things in the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are why that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, he, that as written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And we say, glory to God. So here's the three things I want to quickly go over in this story. Grace, running the background. Grace for my messy family. <laughs> I see a lot of nodding. <laughs> Grace for my personal failure. And grace for my seemingly ruined future. That's what we see here. Grace for my messy family. It came to pass, as we read in those first five verses. See, Judah leaves his family, possibly due to shame. We aren't told. But this is a big deal for a family that already had big problems. Judah visits his friend, a Canaanite named, uh, named Hira. They become close friends, possibly partners in business. When Hira is mentioned, trouble seems to follow Jacob. Proverbs says in verse 13, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Do you not be deceived? Evil company corrupts good habits. Judah marries a Canaanite woman, knowing this was forbidden by God. God did not design the marriage covenant as an evangelism institution. He did not design marriage 
as an evangelism institution. Do not be, on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? They have three sons. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Er's firstborn and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. In other words, Tamar is bad news. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So these sons become a heartache as well. Er, we are told, is killed by God. Onam was killed because he refused to raise up an heir for his brother. And now Shelah, Judah, this Tamar, is bad news. I don't want Shelah killed also. So Judah tells Tamar to wait, but he has no intention to give her to his third son. It seems that Judah would not acknowledge that his sons were the problem, not Tamar. So the family is messy. But we dare not mess with God's ordained design as to what family and marriage is. God's grace runs in the background when his ordained institutions are honored as messy as they might get. God created the institution of marriage and family so it is no wonder that the devil and the world that is under his sway are warring against it to destroy it. Marriage is one genetic man and one genetic female which are the totality of God's created gender identity. There are only two. A same-sex couple may try to reimagine, legitimize, and legalize marriage, but the truth is the truth, and nothing but the truth. God will not bless what he cannot bless. Marriage is a holy matrimony. And when honored as such, no matter how messy it gets, God's grace will run in the background. When not honored, I believe that God's grace is running in the background for those innocent little children who through no choice of their own are subjected to the problems and perversion of sin and hardness of heart. It's no secret. Black Lives Matters, the organization, the movement, I'm not talking about black lives individually or family, the organization, the movement, has as their stated goal to destroy the nuclear family. Period. Be not deceived. They are now trying to hide this fact. I take that as a positive that hopefully righteousness is pushing back enough to get their attention. But make no mistake, they are just regrouping their evils. Be not deceived. Now, 
in supporting the black community, we are all in. We have some fantastic alternatives. You can see my wife short after. But here are a couple of things that have come to our attention, and we're researching them. We are re- so the, the, the Woodson Center, now I don't know if you know who Woodson is, but this whole, Charlotte's has checked into it. We've, it's a little disorganized at this point, but she, she, we're getting contact with them. We are called as ambassadors to the world through the gospel. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. God is not colorblind in that sense. It's the beauty of his creation. In Kent, right here, Kendrick Glover, who I, I just went last Saturday, I went to a, a, a round table, what is it called? A, it's called something. <laughs> they had on the stage, the mayor was there, the police chief was there, uh, a, a bunch, uh, the, the stage was filled with color. Wonderful. And they're talking about the issues that we're facing right now. One of the men who were there was, was uh, this Kendrick Glover, who has a ministry called, uh, uh, help me out, Charlotte. Is it Gem? It's called Gem. Glover Empowerment Mentoring. And I didn't know anything about it, but here it is. He's right there. And he's mentoring. He's given himself to the mentoring in the black community. He himself being black. There's a ton of stuff out there. We are fully trying to be more engaged with the gospel and our mandate to go into all the world in the beauty of God's creation and bring the gospel and bring healing. And we want to be doing that. So again, Charlotte can help you with that if, if that's on your heart this morning. But it seems that Judah would not acknowledge that his sons were the problem, not Tamar. So the future of Judah's name and family is in jeopardy of being wiped out. And it seems that Judah has come to the place where he doesn't really care. And you can imagine the pain and agony that's gone in his life. Now, In just a few things we already know about Judah, we must ask ourselves if we might be at the same place due to our messy families. A kind of numbness. A encroaching cynicism. Given up. I have to tell you, I have felt some of these very things in our family. I believe that yesterday, after already having my outline done, God gave me a word directly connected to this sermon point. First point. It was a bit surreal, actually. It doesn't happen to me very often at all. And I believe he would have me pass it to you. A word for us as as to our responses to our family messes. And here it is. 
The word came by way of the book some of us are reading through this 40 days of prayer. It's called Draw the Circle. The 40-day prayer challenge is by Mark Batterson. So yesterday, this was yesterday, day three, the title of the chapter, they're short chapters devotionally, was Amazing Things. The scripture, he always gives a little scripture, and Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Chapter title, Amazing Things. Here are some of the excerpts. Dwight L. Moody's approach to life was transformed when he heard these words from a British revivalist. Quote, The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Why not you? All of us want to do amazing things for God, but that isn't our job. It is God's job. Our job is simply to consecrate ourselves by yielding our will to his will. And if we do our job, God will do his job. If we consecrate ourselves to God, amazing things will happen. It's absolutely inevitable. Consecration always ends in amazing. Consecration is complete surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We relinquish everything to God, our time, our talent, and treasure. The word consecrate meant, means to be set apart. It means to be designed designated for a special purpose. It means to be completely dedicated to God. Consecration means we no longer call the shots. We give, our, we, we give veto power to God. His word is the final word, whether it's the whole, Holy Scriptures or the Holy Spirit. Consecration is death to self. Consecration is a part of surrender that never ends, and prayer is the catalyst. I loved it. Jonathan Edwards is famous for his servant, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which helped spark the first great awakening Along with his pastorate in Northampton, Massachusetts, he served as the president of Princeton University. Of his known descendants, there are, there are more than 300 ministers or missionaries, one, uh, 120 university professors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 college presidents, three members of Congress, and one vice president. That's an impressive family lineage, and that legacy, like every spiritual genealogy, traces back to a moment of consecration. On January 12th, 1723, 17 years prior to this, this sermon that he spoke monologue. Jonathan Edwards made a solemn dedication of himself to God. He consecrated himself, all of himself, to God. He said, quote, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God, to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity or happiness, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, unquote. This is something that we can do. We must do. It changes everything everything. Why not you? Why not me? Dear brothers and sisters, what we need in our messy families is to consecrate ourselves to God. What our families need is our consecration to God. Joshua said, 
Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. He closes out the chapter with these verses. Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. But if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, would you say it with me? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua said. Consecration to God. I need grace also for my personal failure. In the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, verse 12. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So a few years go by, now Judah is a widower. His wife dies, he's comforted and goes out to party. That's what they were doing. For the Canaanite sheep shearing were times of revelry and partying. Now, Judah had some very troubling times. Joseph, his son. Joseph, his sons, his wife. And he may feel like a victim. He is not. He had made some choices and is reaping the fruit of those choices in his life. Certainly the choice he made about Joseph is weighing exceedingly heavy. He chose to leave his family. He chose to live among the Canaanites. He befriended Hira. He married a Canaanite woman. And the Canaanites were very wicked people. His sons were wicked and killed. So it's no wonder he's saying he's lying to Tamar. Say, hey, when he has no intention... She's bad news. Tamar knew her father-in-law very well. He is living just like a Canaanite. And so she disguised herself as a harlot. She knew exactly what he would do because that's what he did. The Canaanites' idolatry centered on sexual immorality. They... There were priestesses in their temple that were nothing more than prostitutes. So she disguised herself in verse 16. Then Judah turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So Judah gives her his license, his social security number, and his credit card. And he did not have ID theft insurance. That's what's going on here. So, as mentioned earlier, I want to pause a moment. This is why God took them out of Canaan and down to Egypt to protect and preserve them from destroying themselves. This is a warning to all of God's people down through the ages. Sin will find you out, and where there is no repentance, sin will wipe you out. 
Sin is like leaven. It corrupts silently. It corrupts slowly. It corrupts insidiously. And if left unchecked, it will corrupt completely. It is no secret that there is a pandemic of secret personal failure hiding away in the darkness of sexual immorality. Be not deceived. There is a huge problem among God's people in this room, some of them. I say to you, my brothers, Michael Allen leads a group here, men's conquer, whatever, to get help so you can get whole. I say to you, my sisters, Pat Shepard, the hem of his garment, and others, get help so you can get whole. Pay attention to what's going on and realize the end of that door is destruction. So she arose, verse 19, and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there's no harlot in this place. He's going, hmm. <laughs> so he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this, in this place. Then Judah said, let her, take her, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed for it. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So Judah thinks he's got it all covered. As time goes by, he's actually beginning to think maybe it's all over. And it came to pass, verse 24, about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It's amazing how ignorant we can become when we see someone else's sins, our sins on someone else. David said to Nathan, he shall surely die. Nathan says, you're the man. Now the beautiful thing that we're going to see also about Judah is David repented. He repented. The Pharisees bring the woman and says, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. What do you say? And Jesus said, he was no sin, let him cast the first stone. And slowly they begin to go out and leave because they're guilty of sin themselves. And they're so pious. Well, what about her? She's caught in the very act. And I say, where's the men? And slowly they go out. And then Jesus, oh, the mercy of God. Amen. Woman, where are your accusers? Well, none. Neither do I accuse you. Then he said, Go your way and sin no more. Sin is a, prison take, a prisoner taker. Sin is bondage. And Jesus came to set us free from sin. How? Through repentance. He thinks he's got it all covered. When she brought, when she brought out the... Uh, it came to pass after three months that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's a child with harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And when she, brought, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, now I believe as I read this, it seems like Tamar is very respectful, almost gentle. 
And I will say to you, God is the same. He draws us to himself that he might cleanse us and heal our lives. But it's a choice. It's a direction. It's the conviction that comes in our sin that we must respond to. And she brought out, she said to her father, saying, by the man to whom these things belong, I am a child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Judah's sin and hypocrisy are in a moment exposed. Know this, your sin will find you out. Here we see, this is beautiful, it's beautiful. Here we see a small beginning of Judah's whole direction in life changing back to God. Beautiful, beautiful. He is deeply humbled and truly repentant Grace was running in the background. Judah had no more physical relationship with Tamar. He repented of his failure. The next time we read of Judah, he is back with his brothers. He returned to his family. Something happened in the heart of Judah when he's called out for his sin. And that's what God wants to do for us. And we will rejoice in the future that lays ahead if that happens. And this is the point here. It begins when he owns his sin. It begins when he owns, takes ownership of his failure. He's not condoning Tamar's immorality He's confessing his failure to do what he, was, what he promised to do in giving to him his, his, his son Tamar. He covenanted to do that. Now, I want to stop a moment again. We are seeing the, the lawlessness that at least in part seeks to silence and destroy any need to acknowledge the fact that we play a role in our calamities and our hardships and our trouble. To blame others, to look for excuses, is to destroy any potential that these very same things, by the grace of God, have the potential to transform our very character. The potential to free us with courage and commitment as victors over sin, not victims of our sin or someone else's. Listen, the system is not the problem. It is the sin in our hearts that is the problem in all the systems. Sin runs in the background of all systems because every group, every organization, every government is, is full of sinners. Sin is the systemic problem. Personal, individual sin, period. True repentance changes everything including the most perverse of systems. 
It can change a nation. It begins with individuals. It will only begin with personal, individual repentance. How are we doing with time? I'll let you take this next passage and just read it when you get home, but I want to say this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses this. Are you sorry for your sin before a holy God, or are you sorry you got caught? And Paul calls it godly sorrow versus the sorrow of the world. And he says there, when there is true repentance, godly sorrow, he says there's no more carelessness about sin. There's no more excuses. There's no more pointing fingers. There's no more blaming others. There's a new reverence for God. There's a new love for God. There's a new conviction of my mind. There's a new freedom. Listen, there's a new freedom from guilt and condemnation. How? Through repentance. Repentance is the door to the mercy and grace of God. And there's no one that doesn't need to knock on that door in their life. Romans says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, or grace superabounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We come to the cross often. So why not you and why not me? And why not now own our sin? Own our failures. No more excuses. No more secrets. No more blaming others. No more pointing fingers. Just saying, Lord, what about me? Consecrate ourselves to God and take ownership of our own failures and sin. And so this final point, grace for my seemingly ruined future. God's grace running the background of Judah's shame through his repentance and then restoring his life for a future that included the genealogy of the Messiah. And so it came to pass, verse 27, at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore his name was called Perez, breach. Afterward his brother came out and what had the scarlet, came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Perez, the second in a sense, became a part of the line of Messiah. Grace for my seemingly ruined future. Listen, the future is filled with hope because of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's filled with hope. The future is filled with hope because of the new birth through faith in Jesus. The future is filled with hope because there's coming a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The grace of God is running in the background in everything that happens. And His grace is our destiny in spite of messy families, in spite of, in spite of personal failures, and in, 
and seemingly ruined futures because Jesus is our brother and our family. Jesus is our forgiveness and our freedom. I got to hear an amen. I mean, come on. There you go. Jesus is our future and our hope. I love it. The grace of God is running in the background, brothers and sisters. It's there to tap into. It's there when we don't even realize it. It's there when we see it afterward. God's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is not cheap. It costs God his son. When we stand before Jesus in glory, his grace will be our story. I almost want to stand now. Here's a hymn that does not have the word grace, but oh, how it runs in the background. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to close here. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died for me. Singing, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me, with, when with ransom in glory, his face I at last shall see. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Forever I will sing your praises, Jesus, risen King. Oh, my God, I stand amazed that you love me, singing how marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I'm going to close this here, uh, Sophia. Just we'll close. Lord, we bow our hearts before you. And I just want all of us, just before the Lord, the throne of grace, the throne of mercy. Lord, we just humble ourselves and we thank you for your grace and mercy. And Lord, we would just, I'm just going to close it here, Sophia. Yeah. Uh, can you, uh, is there any chance that you can fake it through how marvelous, how wonderful? Is it Kevin? Okay, well, I'll, I'll leave a cappella. If you guys can fake it, go for it. Okay. But anyway, I, I really want to take a moment here for all of us. And if, if, if there's a need in your, some of the things that we've hit on, I know the Holy Spirit just takes sentences, words, whatever, and he just speaks to our hearts. And I don't, it's not been my experience that there's a million things God's trying to say to me. There's just something that, that nudges me or calls me or convicts me. And so I don't know what's going on for you before the Lord, but in your heart of hearts before the Lord, vulnerable, honest, open, what's going on? Is there, is there a, a need you have to repent? 
Is there something that's difficult that's sort of even extinguished any flame that you might have had? Is your family in a lot of trouble, maybe someone in your family? I just want to ask you to bring it to God in your prayers, in your heart. Say, Lord, here it is. Here it is. Messy family, personal failure. Seeming like maybe that you've ruined a future. And I want to speak over, as the Lord would speak to us, that He is faithful. He will complete the work He's began. He works in us to will and to do. His power is exceedingly mighty. He is able to change your life and your heart and your circumstances in such a way that you will rise triumphant in Jesus' name over sin and its power, over suffering and difficulty. We're singing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. One more time. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love. One more time. How, how wonderful that my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So we could just say as we leave these doors, leave this building, never are we out of your presence. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit as believers. We're praying for anyone, that, even someone here, someone watching, someone in our family who does not know that love, does not know how marvelous you are, that you grant them repentance, they come and find at your feet the love that they so desperately need, the forgiveness that they so desperately long for, the relieving and removing of all guilt under the cross and the blood of Jesus. So draw them, we pray, Lord. And I ask now as we leave, as we go out into this, this troubled world, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a boldness by your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses, your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen.